Welcome to a special episode of Wax Half Full. This is sort of a, what you would call a guide in, in anime parlance. It's a little side story from the regular plot. Um, and I've brought on another recurring guest. I put on Cam because he feels very strongly about uh, the COVID situation in the world, the vaccine rollout and things of that matter. And he seemed to want a place to rant about it, but he didn't want to write a 5,000 word blog on Medium. So he decided to come on on the pod again instead yeah yeah hey uh how's it going i am just obsessed with this because uh on the one hand these companies have been given a blank check to save the world by the governments uh by basically every western government and yet one of these companies in particular just keeps fucking it up so many times uh that it's a little mind-blowing and uh they're being helped in their uh, journey of fucking up by the european union who uh I have done a harsh 180 on over the last few uh, over the last few months, and we're talking, of course, of AstraZeneca. Yeah, that, that yeah. can't stay out of the news lately. Yeah, hasn't been able to stay out of the vaccine news for for the last I don't know eight months. I want to say. Yeah. So I want to ask you. So so you put. So maybe this is just me reading into your words too deeply, but you put the onus of blame on them first because you said AstraZeneca was walking up helped by the European Union. So yeah. can you explain that to me? So this really comes back to uh, a couple months ago um, when AstraZeneca first released their clinical trial results uh, that were used to justify um, the approval in the EU, uh, which tends to be a little more, uh, which tends to run on a bit of a different track and look at some different things than uh, the US. And so they had a trial that... Um, that they ran for Europe that they submitted. And uh, you might've heard if you were following the news kind of just off to the side that AstraZeneca, um, the EU actually refused to approve the AstraZeneca vaccine in people greater than the age of 65. They only approved it for people between 18 and 64 who are the not high risk group. Um, 65 plus that is where almost like the vast majority of COVID deaths are coming from. Uh, and the reason for that is because AstraZeneca's phase three clinical trial which is like the thing that's used to justify um, the vaccine, um, their trial design was unbelievable. They, um, so basically for those, for people who haven't worked in clinical trials, and by the way, my wife who is, uh, who works in clinic, me medical regula regulatory is sitting next to me and may tell me I'm an idiot if I say something stupid. Um, they, so your phase three clinical trial is kind of the last thing you have to do. And it's when you test it in a lot of people to make sure that your, your product is both safe and effective. And this and is a lot, when you say lots, we mean this is in the 10,000 range, right? Yes, it's That's in the tens of thousands. Okay. Um, and so in this case, AstraZeneca um, enrolled a, like a large number of patients. And yet, so the way it works is you have to uh, enroll thousands of patients, both in your, to get the actual vaccine and to get a placebo. And the way a vaccine trial works is you wait until enough people in either group have gotten COVID. And then you compare at that time, how many people got COVID in the, the group that got the vaccine and how many people got COVID in the placebo group. Uh, and the problem is that if you don't have enough people, you can't actually say anything about it because the results are not statistically significant. There's a bunch of like math voodoo that tells you if that's true or not. Right, because these these aren't the uh, challenge trials that people talk about. This is just putting it out in the wild. You're not actually infecting anyone with COVID intentionally. Exactly. This is, this is incidental, seeing yeah. how it works in the wild. Yeah. And so the way um, the way it worked was AstraZeneca enrolled 
a total uh, uh, for their clinical trial that was used in Europe, and I'm looking at the table right now, they had about 6,000 people in their um, in their uh, like group that got the vaccine and about 6,000 people in the group that got the placebo. Uh, and what that came out overall was about a 70% of efficacy rate in not getting COVID. Uh, only 30 people who got the vaccine got COVID, whereas 100 people got the vac- who didn't get the vaccine didn't get COVID. And that sounds great. But the problem was when you looked at the, uh, the details of the clinical trial, of that 6,000 people in each group who got uh, the vaccine, only 300 of them were over 65. And what that meant was because the EU breaks out approvals by uh, like regular adults and seniors, uh, when you look at like the clinical trial for only seniors, one person in the, in the group who got the vaccine got COVID and one senior who was in the group who didn't get the vaccine got COVID, which is, which means that there is no difference between the, uh, between the COVID group and the not COVID group. And as a result, the EU looked at this data and was like, your vaccine looks like it doesn't work because we don't have enough data to show that it works for seniors. Well, it was inconclusive and, because yeah, the sample exactly. size was... Because but, the I sample mean, size was too small. Basically, you're saying the sample size in the senior group was too small to like make any to draw. Yes, yes. From. And bec- and in the data that they got, equal number of people in their senior group and non-senior group got COVID. And so, like, if that was the only data you were looking at, you would say, "Oh, it's there's no difference." And so, what this means is they knew when they were designing this clinical trial that senior citizens were like the group that needed to get the vaccine as soon as possible, and their clinical trial in and of itself only enrolled 6,000 people total in each group, which is way less than the Pfizer clinical trial, way less than the Johnson & Johnson clinical trial. And Oh, so could, could I um, press you a bit on that if you have any more information? So Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson and Moderna, they all had larger trials in general, but they also skew the trials to be more towards senior I, citizens. I don't know exactly the skew in mm-hmm. each of them, um, but I can tell you that in, um, uh, I don't have those tables up in front of me, but I know that the, the clinical trial that was used to approve Pfizer, uh, in the U S, uh, enrolled 44,000 people, Moderna enrolled 30,000 people. Uh, the Bloomberg, uh, vaccine tracker that I'm looking at says it enrolled 65, says AstraZeneca enrolled 65,000 people, but that's not what's in these results. So I think that that's, uh, a different one of their, uh, I think that's a different one of their clinical trials because the one that's not the data that the EU used. Um, yeah, the U.S. study for AstraZeneca enrolled seventeen thousand, uh, and the one that the EU is using, yeah, only enrolled twelve thousand. Um, but so, in any, but in any case, the, the sample they collected from the senior population was too small. To exactly, it was far too small. From. Okay, Se- they they enrolled oh just an insanely low number of people for their senior group. And what, what, why this makes me so mad is because this was a choice. You choose who you enroll, like you set criteria for your clinical trial, for your population. And you don't start the clinical trial until you enroll the population that you want. And so they should have known ahead of time that they needed to make sure that they had enough people in their senior arm for their clinical trial because they know that getting seniors inoculated is the most important thing that you can do to stop people from dying. And the reason why this pisses me off is because this is just so important, right? Like this company, AstraZeneca, was given this IP for this vaccine by Oxford University. Uh, 
they like what actually happened with this company is that Oxford University developed this vaccine and then they were introduced to AstraZeneca by Bill Gates. And Bill Gates and his foundation said, AstraZeneca is a great partner to build your vaccine. You should give them the technology and work with them. And so AstraZeneca was given a blank check, basically, to do this. Like if they needed more money from the EU or from the US to run their studies, they could have become part of Operation Warp Speed or whatever and gotten their money. And they chose they effed up their clinical trial. And as a result, they submitted shitty data to the EU. And as a result, the EU looked at their shitty data and was like, we don't trust this vaccine. Okay. And what that set off was the EU looking at the AstraZeneca vaccine skeptically in general. Okay, so so at this point, though, we're up, the EU regulators, they're within their rights to look at it skeptically because they're given this data and they have to do their jobs. So this, Absolutely. This would, so this would happen if like AstraZeneca presented this sort of data to the United States, it would happen too, or would it not have happened? Because It, we- it depends. So it, you, I, I don't want to say how the FDA would have re- responded to this. But I know that I saw a lot of scientists who were involved in all of this just getting mad, like on Twitter when they saw this and like reacting just incredibly like dumbfounded to these to this table uh, when it came out. And so so how do they end up? But now they are actually administering the AstraZeneca vaccine to seniors. So did they have to do another? What what happened there? Did they? Well, so the, 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 the UK um in started administering the vaccine to seniors kind of a little prematurely Uh, Um, there was a lot of there's kind of some politics involved in that um because it's an oxford vaccine and the uk really wants to um like tout itself uh especially post brexit so they pushed to get the vaccine approved in the uk as quickly as possible um and they immediately started administering to seniors and there there haven't been any issues in the uk okay, even so, now so basically uh, the, so the basis for spreading it to seniors around europe was the live tri- not the live trial the actual like real world results from uk seniors was good i, be- I believe so okay so so that, that leads us to, I guess, AstraZeneca's second fuck up was they yeah. couldn't uh, produce enough uh, vaccine once it was time to produce a vaccine. Yeah. And what happened there exactly? They just... So uh, there's there's a lot of complicated, like, garbage supply chain stuff that's, again, like, very Brexit related, mm. um, where there's a lot of, like, turf war going on between... Uh, so some of the AstraZeneca vaccine is manufactured in the UK, some of it's manufactured in the EU, and I think some of it's also manufactured in the India. US. India, and, a, lot of, a lot in India too, I think. And in India, yeah. And so what's going on right now is that there's a lot of orders that are being filled uh, for the EU, um, but the UK is also trying to import from the EU to the UK um, to get because they made a bunch of really early orders on this. And now the EU is saying, hey, we're actually not getting enough vaccine. And they're, they're actually, uh, there was a story out today that says the UK, the EU might actually block the UK from importing vaccine from any of the EU manufacturing sites because they're so unfulfilled in their own orders. And meanwhile, the US is also sitting on millions of doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine that we have not distributed because there's no clinical trial reciprocity. The the FDA is not willing to approve based on UK or uh, EU data. And so now, uh, and so the AstraZeneca vaccine is not expected to be approved in the U.S. for at least another two months 
but we're still sitting on millions of doses of it. Right. And on a tangent, like uh, recently news came out that we're going to loan those vaccines to Mexico and Canada where they have been approved. So yes. they're not going to complete waste, at least. Yeah. Which we I, I, should have done a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're, we're also using it for political capital, but that's what the U.S. does. There's like, yes. some immigration shit going on. But let's, oh, yeah. let's, not, let's not get into that. Well, let's not get into that too deeply here. Let's yeah. just say it's it's not no strings attached. There are definitely strings attached. But anyway, uh, uh, what, what's the word on the root cause of AstraZeneca being unable to fulfill like their orders? Uh, like, what is it? Is it just really boring logistical shit? They're just bad at business? I, I think it's I think it's logistical shit. Like, I really don't you really can't underestimate how stupid like EU, like in in like between the EU and neighboring country trade crap is. I actually don't know the full details on what's going on with the um with the logistics, but it's a lot. I, I, as far as I know, a lot of it has to do with that as well as the fact that like, there's just a lot of shortage of like parts for vaccines and everything else in general, because like we're trying to make billions of doses of all of them. Um, I know the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, uh, they've had to, uh, spin up a lot of additional capacity for, uh, different parts of the vaccine. They're even using like the military to commandeer supplies to manufacture stuff in the U.S. Uh, so, I mean, I think that that stuff is, I think, more understandable. Johnson & Johnson also had a similar problem uh, where they were slower getting up to their manufacturing uh, capacity than they had expected. All right. Well, let's go to the point where you find now, so, so far, we've we just been talking about how AstraZeneca has been fucking up on their end. So, yeah. But now there's this blood clot issue where you seem to say, hey, this is the, you know, Europe. Well, I don't want to say Europe as a whole, but yeah, it's it's the individual European states' fault in, in a way. Yes. Yeah. So, cool. so what's going on there? What's going on there? So basically, um, over the last few weeks, the EU, a couple countries in the EU have reported that there have been a, a slightly higher number than normal uh, amounts of patients who have gotten the vaccine and then uh, very soon after uh, experienced uh, blood clots that uh, have in a couple in some in some cases actually led to patients dying, uh, which obviously that's that's not good. Like you want to look into that. Um, the the problem that I oh, have and, and, and just to um just to clarify, th these are all like pulmonary embolism related like this, I, I imagine, or is it this um so. There are a couple. There are a couple slightly different, um, slightly different clotting disorders that have been observed, but right. uh, I think a lot of them have been pulmonary embolisms. Okay. Well, yeah, that's such an aside. But yeah, sorry. Go on. Yeah, and so I don't necessarily fault the the regulators for like taking this seriously and communicating about it. Where I fault them is that their messaging has just been dog shit, and this is coming from like months of dog shit messaging from the EU about COVID, about vaccines, and about uh, this issue, now this issue in particular, because each of the individual EU member states has been giving, uh, uh, have to different degrees been giving uh, messaging that's different from the EU medical regulators themselves, who should be the people that are being deferred to on this. So for instance, France, um, Emmanuel Macron has like, even presented himself as like a light vaccine skeptic um, and has not taken COVID particularly seriously. And France was one of the first uh, countries to get really freaked out about this, uh, this blood clot issue and halt administration of the vaccine. And 
So, so when you're saying their messaging has been dog shit, you don't you mean that they failed to show the appropriate amount of confidence in back vaccinations as a yes. general concept? So they've failed. They've failed to communicate the seriousness, uh, and they they've made all the same mistakes the U.S. has made in terms of inconsistent messaging on how to handle COVID and how to handle uh, like how serious it is and what the proper precautions should be. But then there's since the vaccine rollout, there's been inconsistent messaging on how important it is to get your vaccine. There's been inconsistent messaging on whether the vaccines work. There's been inconsistent messaging on which vaccines work and there and who should get it. And now they, when you have a serious issue like this, the most important thing is to make sure everybody is saying the same thing. Because if one person is saying the vaccine is safe and another person is saying the vaccine is going to kill you, most people are going to look at the guy who's saying the vaccine is going to kill you. And if they're remotely trustworthy, they're going to not want to take the vaccine. Like if the, if the French government says, we think the vaccine is dangerous and the EU government says the, the vaccine is safe, there's no, it's not obvious to somebody living in France that they should trust the EU and not trust France. Especially well, well, because a lot of people are skeptical of the EU in general and think it's controlled by politics. Well, well, let me just like present like a counter argument here. Like, wh what are they supposed to do? The it's their duty, the regulators, to present their findings in those individual countries. So, if the German regulators, I think they found, and this was like a small difference. I think like per million people, the occurrence of blood clots normally would be like four cases, I think, and they found that within the population that got the AZ vaccine, it was seven, and you know, going by their, whatever their, their internal standards are, they said, Hey, we have to report this and stop it. Like, how do you, how do you do good messaging on that when the agency is sort of obliged to say, Hey, it's, it is by these numbers are alarming. It's a, it's a, it's a genuinely hard problem. And I don't envy people who are in public facing communication roles in a pandemic because everything that you say is so goddamn important. Um, like, for instance, at the very beginning of the pandemic, Fauci said stuff about how masks probably don't work. And later on, obviously, we found that masks really did work. But because he said that several months ago, now there's a lot of people who just don't believe anything he says. And so, like, I don't want to downplay how hard this is. However, like, when something is this important um, and, like, every bit of confidence in the vaccine matters. And so... What I would want to be seeing in this case is if you are going to take such a dramatic step that you have to can't, that you have to suspend the use of the vaccine, you need to be that needs to be coordinated. That messaging really does need to like you need you need to be working with the EU regulators. You need to be able to come up with some sort of consolidated statement that everybody's speaking the same language. And like if you find that it's safe and the EU you what you don't want is what happened, which is the EU announced it's safe without these countries necessarily like coming out to say like, yes, we agree and it's safe and we we were wrong to stop the trial. Like now what's happened is that you're going to have millions of people who are going to at the very least be scared to get this vaccine, if not refuse to get it. And so, I don't really know, like to be honest, I don't know what the right way to handle this problem is because it's serious, but it's just, Right. So, so, Where maybe, we're at so, so maybe ideally it's like the way the messaging goes is that, hey, the governments say, hey, we're putting a temporary stoppage because we found some data. Exactly. That, that yeah. might be, like, we're going to, we're going to look into some more and they're going to say, hey, people who are not seniors, it's perfectly 100% safe for you. There's no data that says it's dangerous for you. Yeah. And 
I don't know. Yeah, I'm trying to like craft like a strategy in my mind, and, and it is like very very hard. Yeah, to think it's about how re- messaging. It's not easy. However, they did a worse job than I would than 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 I would expect. I guess is kind of what I'm what I'm kind of like mad about. Like it this this issue when it first started like was communicate. It came across in sort of like maximalist terms, um, and there was no hedging. There was no sense that this was something that was still under investigation. There was like, oh shit. We're, we're getting blood clots. We got to pull the plug on this thing. And then this whole time, the EU regulators are just going, no, what, what are you talking about? It's, it's fine. Stop. And when you have the EU regulator saying one thing at the exact same time as the like individual European country regulators are saying something else, like who the hell are you supposed to believe? Yeah. This sort of ties into like something interesting I saw in the New York Times last um, this weekend. I, this weekend, I should say, um, I was surprised that so the New York Times they ran an article basically, and it's it's just dunking on Europe for their COVID response. Like why is <laughs> why is Europe doing so poorly compared to the United States? And it basically went through all these points, like the bureaucracy. Like Europe is always because of its member states and how they work within the union. It's just a giant bureaucracy that always errs on the side of caution and, and it moves slowly. It's like a mm-hmm. lurching machine of like red tape. And it actually, I thought what was kind of surprising, we're, we're getting a little bit away from pure COVID talk now. We're getting into like media criticism, media matters talk. <laughs> but uh, I thought it was funny that the New York Times very cautiously gave the Trump administration some credit for its COVID uh, vaccine response, that it got the ball rolling on this mm-hmm. basically um, just like no no holds barred just full full green light straight ahead approach that you need that you need to take yeah it's actually funny because there was like a lot of like kind of interesting office politics in the white house that led to operation warp speed where like basically uh the the head of health and human services was in the doghouse in the trump administration and he like came up with the idea to pitch trump on like going whole all in on a vaccine strategy is like the way to save the pandemic. And he like was got lucky enough that he was able to make the pitch successfully and get the money to get it done. And that was without a doubt, like the bet, like one of the few good things that the Trump administration did was sort of from the very beginning, make a big bet on a bunch of companies doing the vaccine uh, at the same time and making some commitments to all of them to buy their doses and providing them funding and whatnot. And really just sort of even beyond that, just like emphasizing that vaccination was a way that we could get out of this. Right. Um, it was which, the most American solution possible. Like, like, like absolutely. We, we couldn't do anything. I like, absolutely refused to curb anyone's freedoms, but through all the money at the vaccine possible. Yeah. And it's not, it's not crazy. Like I think if you had better public health messaging, earlier there was a world where you set really good like you set expectations around the vaccine to the point where you tell people look we're gonna have to temporarily limit all these things but we promise there's an end date and that end date is like july of next year especially Mm -hmm. once the vaccine started to um like get approved that sounds Uh, really that sounds like a very um in hindsight, that's easy to say, but you yeah, know, the, re- the researchers at the time were saying, hey, because this had never been done before. Yeah. Like, this much money and uh, investment yeah, had never yeah. been put into vaccine production. People were saying like 24 months, you know. Totally. And longer. so like, I, I and I think that you'll see a lot more like high-minded, like, 
like scientists and like back public health communicators and certainly some people who are kind of like hardened partisans saying like, yeah, like Operation Warp Speed was pretty good. I think where oh, people who, who try to get- point though? Um, because I know that, you know, some of the more partisan reporting was saying that they were very much focusing on the fact that Pfizer was not a part of Operation yeah. Warp Speed, but what were they also, they were working with the government in, in other ways, I, yeah. I, I guess. Like, what was going on there? I'm not, I'm not so, could you Yeah, so Pfizer, Pfizer basically, they did not want to create the perception that there was political, there, there was anything political to do with their vaccine and Pfizer of the companies that did the vaccine um like is one of the biggest like much much bigger than moderna um i'm not sure i i i don't want to speak to whether it's them or johnson and johnson that's bigger because i actually continually find out new things that are made by johnson and johnson that i didn't know before um but like pfizer is one of the biggest drug companies in the world and so like they don't need the government to do this and so uh there was really no benefit to them taking money from operation warp speed so they, and like some of the other vaccine companies like Novavax uh, are like really, really small companies. And so uh, there was no reason for uh, Pfizer to participate in Operation Warp Speed. And so they didn't and they got it done. But I do think that for some of these other vaccines, like Operation Warp Speed was definitely important. Right. But in any case, the U.S. government got in early with the Pfizer and they made yeah. the deal early. They were like, hey, oh, yeah. whenever it's done, here's a gazillion dollars. We'll, we'll buy all these vaccines. Yeah. Although to be actually on that point, though, Trump uh, did under purchase the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, Biden, uh, one of the first things he did after he came in was renegotiate the terms of that deal with Pfizer to commit to an additional like 100 million doses or something like that. Um, so of course he under, uh, he under purchased the, the one that got finished first, whereas, uh, the U S, uh, over purchased, uh, over committed to some of the vaccines that did not, uh, that came much later. So like, we actually are committed to a, like a, a comical number of Novavax doses, which is not done yet. Um, uh, just to stay on the politics topic a little bit. Yeah. So, so what what can uh, Biden rightfully take credit for? Because like right now, the vaccine rollout is going really well, and I would suppose um, people who are more conservative would say, I mean, that's it's based, They would say, hey, no, this is because like the Trump administration went all in on the vaccines, and now that's coming to fruition now. So, so I, what do you I, think? What's, the, what's a fair assessment here? Yeah, I think the biggest thing the Biden administration can take credit for, um, beyond sort of the banal like public health messaging and like talking about how important COVID is, is uh, sort of the nuts and bolts of um, coordination and distribution. So one of the biggest things that's gotten a lot of doses into arms is these FEMA sites. Um, a lot of people say that the the FEMA sites that are run by troops uh, and uh, like federal workers are, work way faster and way better than most of the sites that are run by the states. I know the one in New York that's a FEMA site. Uh, people just remark on like, holy shit, like they're going, they're just, they're, they get thousands and thousands of doses uh every day um and those are purely federal and the trump administration did not set up a single one um they the the trump administration basically said they they got everything 80 percent of the way and then dropped a bunch of stuff in the state's lap and said uh you guys figure it out from here and that was what they did on essentially every part of the pandemic it was completely federalized or, or it was completely uh when you say yes federalized depending on what you're saying can mean both yeah, things yeah. uh it was completely given to the states um and 
between uh like figuring out who's gonna get how many doses or who's gonna get how many um doses and when uh uh coordination between uh states like all that stuff is being handled much much better by the biden administration than the trump administration i do not think that we would be at three million doses a day which we did for two days in a row this weekend uh if trump was still president okay but any so i guess like mm, if we could sum it up very uh very very roughly so trump gets credit for just going all in on the vaccine program but he also gets all the blame for basically doing nothing for prevention preventing yes. spread. Yeah, basically yeah, yeah. like like that's why you know yeah like, um, yeah how, how and and for died. not having a plan to uh, not having a plan for distribution once they were done okay. um operation warp speed did not have a distribution plan hmm. all right um so we're, we're gonna change tack from of sure covid talk to, well vaccine talk i should say to a bit more societal talk so i, I don't know if, if we talked did we talk about something on the podcast or maybe it was just in the chat but I had talked to Cam about how, you know, we were speculating, I was speculating at least about how in certain like East Asian countries, me, uh, you know, I lived in Korea for a long time when I was younger and Korea has a, a very good track record uh, so far in preventing COVID spread. And I was thinking about how maybe this isn't so much about, you know, obviously Western media likes to point to you know the mask wearing and how that's like been normalized in Asia, which is true. Like people like mask wearing has been normal, you know, in East Asia for a long time. If you have a cold, you just wear a mask. But I thought well, something that's more interesting was like the societal pressure aspect, because um, it's very easy to find out who who might be a super spreader in in, in a certain case because one the spread there is small enough that the contact tracing works like in the, in the usa the contact rate it's so widespread that contact tracing is basically pointless it's just yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't really matter yeah but but it, when it's like actually limited to, to like hundreds of people thousands of people you can actually contact trace pretty well and find out who spread to who who spread to who yeah yeah so it's so there's that and there's that plus the fact that the media mechanisms there they're a little bit different the media standards mm-hmm. it's um in, in the united states people take you know medical privacy very very seriously and i want to say other countries they say they do but in practice it doesn't really work out quite that way yeah. so basically it's very easy through like you know media you can combine media reporting and all this information you have and people can put the puzzle together and find out exactly oh the super spreader who spread to 80 people like they know who it is the media won't say their name they won't like put up put their picture there but people who talk on the internet, you know, it, it'll basically be public information. Yeah, yeah. And we were talking about how maybe that's sort of why you know people are people want to keep these rules because it's not just the fear of getting COVID. Because as time went along, we found out that young, healthy people they're not really a danger of of dying from it, but uh, becoming a social pariah is actually you know that that's more scary to people than actually getting COVID. At yeah, some point. yeah. And I, I don't know. I, I, that's not really a question, but uh, <laughs> what, what, what do you think about that concept? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the 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 U.S. like has always had sort of the 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 ethos of like I'm gonna do what I want, like fuck you guys. And I think that to a certain extent, you see a lot of that um, in certain places in the EU as well. Whereas for sure, um, I think 
in based on sort of what I hear. So uh, my wife is from China and she has talked about how in China they have a very similar thing where like if you are the super spreader, like if you're the one who brought COVID back to, to, to Shanghai, like everybody will know. Like they're not going to say your name, but there will be enough information about out about you that like everyone will know. Right. And, um, and it's from there, it's not too hard to link you to a death. They can say, hey, you're like three chains away from someone, yeah. from someone who like actually died. Yeah. And I, and I think like part of it is like knowing that like the certainty that, uh, you will be able to, you will be caught if you're the one who brings COVID. I think at this point in the U S like it's kind of the same thing as contact tracing, not working anymore in the U S like if you knew for certain that no one around you has COVID, but you had like, you were going to get COVID and give it to other people. Like that would be a different calculus than like, Oh, we have 200,000 cases a day. Like people are getting COVID all over the place. Like, it's not just me. Um, and like, I think once COVID got so big, um, people just sort of gave up on thinking about prevention. Um, I remember, I definitely felt that around Thanksgiving and Christmas this year, where at the point when we were getting like 200,000 cases a day, we were seeing like 5,000 deaths a day. COVID just got to the point where it felt so big that it's not something that like one person can really get their arms around. And, but um yeah that's something once, i definitely felt because I, I felt that it got to the place in the united states where you could literally know or like have a very good idea that you had given your own like found relative covid and killed them and you wouldn't feel particularly bad about that you'd be like, well that's just how covid is you yeah know, it, yeah it, 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 it had gotten to that point you wouldn't it, you had lost the sense of responsibility there yeah and i just i i feel like it's different when you have so many fewer cases because you're able to say like I meaningfully affected the trajectory of this pandemic. Like I think something that not only China, but South Korea, um, like um, Australia, New Zealand, like all these countries that have gotten to zero COVID, they have really successfully done what the U S failed to do, which was to give their citizens like a sense of responsibility for each other. Um, I think if you, like if you brought COVID to your town in China or South Korea or New Zealand or whatever, like you would not only be shunned, but you'd also feel like shit. Whereas yeah. I don't think America, I don't think America was able to kind of give people the sense that like I have the power to help reduce the spread of COVID. And if I don't, it's my fault. Well, I, I do wonder if um, if it was any different in New Zealand, because I think a lot of the reason why it's been obscured in the U.S., not just because, you know, it's so widespread, contact tracing doesn't work, but it does feel like it's partially at least due to how, uh, you know, like medical privacy is, is much more, re- if it, well, it feels much more revered here, yes. as is um, the media standards to see, like, the, the media is more scrupulous i would say in, in that regard oh i don't, I don't know like I, I especially kind of in like mid time mid mid-year covid last year like if there was like one of those super spreader parties where like uh, i remember there was like a wedding in maine where like uh they held a wedding at a church and then every single person who attended the wedding got covid and they brought it back to their town and like it became one of the hot like biggest hot right. spots of covid in the world like those people report- like they would Those... report it as an event, though. Like they report it as a group, but it, w- it wouldn't be so much like an individual singling out. I feel. I don't know. I fe- I felt like at least in the lib media that I saw, like those mm. people were getting re like they didn't say their names, but like I think they did say the name of the priest who ran mm. the wedding, okay. and like those people were shamed. Yeah. Um, and but like 
there are a lot of other like attempts to bring that shame to uh uh like to america like there are a lot of twitter accounts that like go after people who post like covid super spreader parties on instagram hmm. uh but like it just doesn't really it doesn't really take off like yeah. i don't think i don't think that americans feel the same kind of shame uh that like you probably should yeah, unless you think that we're uh, that we're promoting this sort of like societal shaming, it's not necessarily the case. It's more of like an observation because yeah. because there is a dark side to it. So I was oh totally, yeah. So I was reading some some Korean news about a couple of weeks ago, where basically so the reporting on this is a little bit hard to decipher because again there is the veil of privacy, so you can't get this person's name, and you know there's not as much. There's not. There's only so much they can report in the news. But basically, what seems to have happened is someone who was outed as a super spreader. Someone. Who, so this person, this individual, had apparently broken quarantine rules, and by breaking quarantine rules, had spread COVID to a bunch of people. And then uh, this person uh, was found having committed suicide, and that's sort of they can't link you know those two things, but one can easily you know draw a connection like you know, between the, between those two events. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and so it was, like, a, yeah, it was a societal, it, and I don't want to say for sure because like there's, there's no hard evidence, but one, one can easily presume that. Yeah. And like, I, I don't think it's, I, it, it's obviously a tragedy and like, I, I, you would not want to, even if you did something like that, like that's, that, that, that doesn't deserve like a death sentence, but like, you can really see um, how somebody would feel that like that profound, um, not only like victim be the victim of shaming, but like that profound level of guilt as well. Like, I think um, when you look at how uh, countries that have gotten to zero COVID have to react when COVID spikes again, the way everything shuts down, the way everybody's life around you changes, um, like the way everybody has to get tested, people get stuck in their homes again. Like um, it becomes like such a huge deal for the entire area that uh, like you, and to think that like, that's your fault. Like mm -hmm. you did that. Like I, I, I can you, see. You said, how, you, you said you had anecdotally heard of cases of this in China as well. Like, yeah. I mean, not, um, I, I'm not, I don't know like a lot of the details, but I do know that like when that does, when there are people who, uh, are in that situation, uh, people find out in, in China as well. And I don't, I don't know about any, I don't specifically know of any suicides. Uh, uh my wife says she doesn't know of, of, of any specific episodes of like something like this happening there either, but it certainly would not surprise me. I think there just aren't very many instances of this happening because they've done such a, incredible job of stopping COVID, but um yeah, yeah. it's I, I i can certainly see that happening if yeah 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 well yeah th so that, that was sort of like a dark meditation on yeah. how these societal you know these societal dynamics affect COVID spread yeah and have unintended consequences let's let's like end on a more positive note i guess or yeah. try to by saying right. so so Give me your thoughts. You've been very, you've been very optimistic about how this the speed of vaccinations, yeah. and, uh, how things have been going, at least in the states. So, yeah. how do you see things going in the next few months in the states, and then maybe we'll look worldwide, where maybe then it doesn't doesn't be it isn't so positive. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's definitely a thing that sticks in my throat when I think about this. Um, looking at what's going to happen after we get through the U.S., but 
Um, so, I mean, right now, the the pace of vaccination is at a two and a half million doses a day uh, on a rolling average. And the last two days, so today and yesterday, we reported three million doses apiece, um, which is one percent each day of the um, like like total number of people who are eligible to get the vaccine, which means if you extrapolate that out, once you get to an average of like 1% of the population getting vaccinated per day, you're looking at three months and you're done. Um, Especially when you consider uh, the fact that several tens of millions of people have already had COVID and um, we've already given out 124 million doses. Like, America is going to be looking a lot more like normal much faster than I think people are really prepared to 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 anticipate um with some caveats the biggest being we don't know at what point we're going to start struggling with demand um and I think that that's uh something that we're going to find out probably about a month from now um because or, I think I, I are, my, are there signs my, that the current production rate isn't sustainable? No, no, signs? no. I mean, um, I mean, uh, in terms of people wanting to get it. Uh, um, okay, okay. I think I, my my prediction is by the end of April, um, if you want the vaccine, you'll at least be able to get an appointment. Um, because we're we're really rocking through this, uh, and we're starting to hit points where uh, some of these populations that are like carved out for the vaccine there's a significant portion of them that are declining. And, um, but meanwhile, there's a whole class of like urban professionals and like people who don't have essential worker jobs who are just sitting here, like champing at the bit to get the vaccine so they can go to a movie theater again. Uh, definitely not projecting. Um, and but, who cares like, about those people, those people are going to get vaccinated very quickly. They're going to proactively seek out the vaccine and the worry and I think this is uh, something that we're not gonna um, that we're not gonna know probably for another two months is if we're going to cap out at a level that's too low to really to wipe out COVID. But I definitely think that we're going to continue this pace of two, over two and a half million per day for the next month, uh, and that yeah. we'll 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 get to the summer where essentially everyone who wants a vaccine will have gotten one yeah. in the U.S. Yeah, I guess that is sort of like a issue I wasn't really thinking about. How do you deal with like what a representative population it is that holds out? The 20% of the population, the 30% of the population that refuses to get it. Like, how do you address that issue? Yeah, it's 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 hard. Um, and the things that you would expect to work aren't necessarily the things that work. So there was a focus group that was done a couple of weeks ago where they had a bunch of Trump voters who are statistically Trump voters are the least likely to get the vaccine of any like subgroup. Is it by um, a large, is it is by a large margin or is it? Um, I don't remember all the numbers, but it's, it's appreciable. It's an appreciable okay. margin. Um, and what it's, it's like, there's been a lot of talk in the media about like African-American vaccine hesitancy or other, other like uh, groups um, kind of like historically marginalized groups being vaccine skeptics, but it's actually like, white Trump voters are the people who are the most vaccine skeptical at the moment. And in the focus group that, uh, with those, with those people, uh, surprisingly, most of them, uh, who did ultimately change their mind by the end of the focus group were not convinced whatsoever by like Republican politicians, even being told that Trump himself got the vaccine did not actually have an effect on their willingness to get the vaccine. 
because they are uh, the the primary motivator is sort of like skepticism of politicians and skepticism of like people's motivations with trying to get you to take the vaccine. And so what actually worked the best was when um, a doctor uh, who I, I I think it was Dr. Tom Frieden, um, who was uh, like a former, um, I think he was a former FDA commissioner, uh, came on and like really slowly walked through everybody, like all of their questions from a purely medical uh, standpoint, uh, ended up convincing like a bunch of people. And that's just really slow methodical work so you have um, to do like vaccine town halls basically to yeah help, to help convince people yeah and i think the other thing and this is something that we're not going to know for a while is once workplaces are able to set up mobile vaccine clinics eventually you're going to get to a point where your workplace is just going to require you to get it so like is that legal? um I, I don't know if it's legal but like or they will at least like offer you some incentive to get it so like at um at my old workplace um they did like a flu shot clinic every year and you got like a um you got like a bonus on your health insurance that the company had um, if you got your flu shot. Um, and so I, I would anticipate that um, once we start to hit that cap, you're going to start seeing um, more health insurance programs give you essentially like a soft requirement to get it, or at least massively reduce the, the, the threshold to get it. So like maybe you don't, maybe you're a soft vaccine skeptic, so you're not going to go to CVS to get it yourself. But if you're if at your workplace, they have the nurse there and she's got the shot, you'll just be like, eh, fine, I'll get it. Um, especially for the uh, Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which is only one dose. And so I think that that's going to be kind of how we're going to start to close that gap. But you're still going to have what we have now with vaccine skeptics, where I think what we're going to see in the next wave of COVID at probably like nine months from now in next winter is it's going to be entirely localized. You're going to get little pockets where you're going to see a big flare up and like a, an entire small town is going to flare up with COVID, but like the town over next over is not going to have any, um, which is what we have now with like the measles. Okay. Well, I mean, that, that sounds better than what we have now, but then again, it's not an entirely positive picture, I guess. No. And that says nothing about a lot of the, the rest of the world where their vaccine programs are dog shit. Like the EU, we spent a lot of time harping on the EU um the eu is for all the reasons we talked about as well as more vaccine skepticism from people like macron and just being this incredibly slow moving thing like their vaccine rollout is massively behind the u.s and then when you get to places that are really some of the biggest hotbeds for covid that are also like very densely populated i'm thinking of like brazil um as one of the places that i'm the most worried about um they're way behind uh and like to say nothing of places like sub-saharan africa uh where we have a hard enough time uh getting people the medicine they need already yeah so i I guess that's a good note to wrap up on because i wanted to recommend an article for people to read uh basically if you want just like look up washington post's nigeria pfizer it's a very good history of why people in Nigeria are skeptical of a Pfizer vaccine because of a long history of medical exploitation in Africa by American companies. Yeah. And, you know, it's, um, 
I mean, it, it'll give you some perspective on on why people are mistrustful of vaccines, yeah. especially it, administered by American companies. Exactly. I mean, yeah. You'll hear a lot of people mention the the Tuskegee experiment. It's like it's like a very popular thing that like uh, like left of center journalists will bring up when they're talking in about America. vaccine skepticism in America. Yeah, in America. Yeah, but in like America. that is way less relevant to this conversation than stuff that happened much more recently and yes. is like yeah. Yeah, uh, Cam, you want you want people to read something, something that might edify them on this topic uh, on COVID I in mean, general. Honestly, just like follow journalists or follow doc, follow like public health communicators on Twitter. Don't follow me; uh, I don't have anything useful to say. Um, and just like I don't know, get your vaccine. That's the thing that I care about the most. Get your fucking vaccine so I can go on trips and go see Evangelion in theaters. <laughs> All right, but thanks thanks for coming on, Cam. Uh, yeah, I hope- no problem. I hope you you feel less uh, less stressed out now, and you know this was easier than writing like a five thousand word essay on a medium. Yeah, no, definitely, uh, especially because no one would read that shit. Yeah, well, well, I hope you send this podcast to all of your friends and relatives so they can be a bit more informed on COVID. <laughs> they have all gotten the vaccine, and I haven't. Uh, my <laughs> entire my entire nuclear family has gotten it, but me. All right, man. Okay. And, well, well, yeah, and my wife, uh, my, the nuclear family I grew up with, have all gotten it. All right. All right, Cam. Thanks for All coming right. on. Do you have anything Later. to plug? Nah, not really. All right. Well, listen thanks. to Wax Half Full. <laughs> yes. No, no, don't. If 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 your Cam's if your Cam's uh, close friends and family don't listen to Wax Half Full, <laughs> just listen to the, only this episode, please. All right. Thanks for All listening. Right. I hope we gave you some uh, interesting information. We're not doctors, but I think we just summed up the current events. All right. I hope. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Not a doctor, but yeah, this was fun. Talk to Peace. you later. Bye.